Well, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open them up with me to the Gospel according to Mark. We'll be in chapter 7 in the concluding verses of that chapter. It'll be 31 through 37. We'll be picking up right where we left off last week. While you're turning there, I do want to say hello to everybody and uh, wish that we could communicate, you know, in an easier way and that I could be right in front of your face physically. I want you to know that I miss all of you. I cannot wait until we're back together again. I cannot wait until I can high-five and side-hug and walk into all the classes and talk to all my people. I really do miss you, and I know that you miss being together. But I also want you to know that we are taking strides, and we're going to continue to take strides each week to improve the way that we're communicating to you. And so today is just another effort of that. We finally moved me out of my office, you know, so you, you don't have to just stare at my, my, my library or my books behind me and the little funny toys that I have on my shelves. And we're, we're moving to a new location and we'll continue to uh, seek to do this better each and every week. But our goal is just to, to better connect with you and to better engage with you and all of those who are joining us online. And so, so welcome today. I, I really am glad to meet you in this space, even though it is a little less than what we would call ideal. It's still a great opportunity for us to study God's Word together. And, and so I want to pray for us, and then we're just going to read the text, and we're going to jump, jump right in. So let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the Word that we're going to be able to study today. Lord, thank you for the Gospel according to Mark and the beautiful text that we find ourselves in today. Lord, I pray that you would bless the reading and the study of your Scripture this morning. Lord, give us eyes to see it. Give us ears to hear it. This morning, in the powerful name of Jesus, our Lord, amen. I want you to know this is such a fantastic text. It is, it is beautiful, it's powerful, and it's a sweet story. And so if you're a person who, you know, a good show or a good movie or, or something can get you in the feels, okay, that might be this text this morning. So I'm that guy, and, and so I, I am a at least, you know, probably once every couple week crier. You know, when I'm watching a show or reading a book or whatever it is, and, and so I, I understand you, this is one of those texts that can get us in the fields. And so this is a wonderful uh, story about Jesus and his personal healing power. And so we'll, we'll be in here uh, the, or, or be enjoying that this morning. And so I'm excited to teach it to you. Picking right up where we left off last week, look there in verse <clears throat> 31. It says, Then he returned from the region of Tyre, and he went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. If you understand the, the landscape and the geography of you know, the Palestine and the greater Palestinian uh, area and, and really all of the, the area that we looked at last week with Phoenicia and, and, and all that's to the far left in the north of the Sea of Galilee, you know that this is an interesting route that Mark leads us to for Jesus to go from Tyre through Sidon to get to Decapolis. That, that would be in a similar way for us to get to Birmingham going through Greensboro, okay? So it's not the typical route that we would take, but I believe according to Mark and more than likely Peter, who is informing Mark, inspired by the Spirit here, that this is the route that Jesus took, and this is the the way that he went. And and so if you look at your map, I've been trying to get you to go to your map each and every week because it's just fun to look at it and actually use it. 
But if you're looking at the map, you've got Tyre that's going to be in the, the northwest of your map. Usually it's going to be your map in the back of the Bible that's got the Sea of Galilee on it or the ministry of Jesus. But we had Jesus near or in the area of Tyre last week, and he's going to go, according to Mark, 20 miles to the north on the coast there of Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are cities that you can visit today. They're in uh, Lebanon, and we'll, we'll actually connect back to Lebanon in just a little bit. But Sidon is actually the largest city in Lebanon today. And, and so Jesus goes, it, it appears that he goes to Sidon. And then, I mean, from what I can see, it looks like he makes like a horseshoe and goes uh, around and then down to the Decapolis. And so on the east side of the lake, and that would be through some mountainous areas. And what this shows us could just mean that that's the route that he desired to take with his disciples. It could also mean that he was avoiding the area that would be under Herod Antipas with the messianic craze that was in such an uproar at this moment. It might have been a good idea or he saw it as a wise route to take to get to where he wanted to go. But we we don't know why it is that he took this route. We just know that according to Mark, he did. And some, you know, some of the greatest students of the book of Mark and the language and the scholars that we have, or at least the ones that I've read. And this week I read about 10 commentaries. And so I had a, had a pretty broad view of this account. And what we see is some people believe this might've been six months, you know, four to eight months of a journey that he takes. And so we've got hundreds of miles that could be covered here. And so probably 120 to 160 miles of territory that's covered and a whole lot of time and a whole lot of ministry that takes place that I believe Matthew actually summarizes in his passage or in his text. But but Mark doesn't need to tell us. And we know that according to John, that there were so many things that Jesus said and did that if all of those things were written, there wouldn't be enough space in all the books in the world to fill it. And so, you know, not everything is written down. But Mark specifically is going to give us the story that we're in today and for our good and for the glory of God. And so we see that Jesus goes around and he comes through the mountain and makes his way into the Decapolis. The Decapolis was a group of city-states that were Greek settlements that came through in the 4th century like B.C., with the conquering of Alexander the Great. And so these were Alexander the Great conquered territories. They were Greek settlements. And there were 10 primary cities that were formed during that time. And that's why we call it the Decapolis. And so that's where Jesus makes his way. I do want to leave Mark for just a second. You don't actually need to make your way there or turn into the text. But I want to read for you out of the book of Matthew what Matthew says about this same time period, okay? Matthew doesn't give us the same details. He gives us a grand picture. He gives us the 30,000-foot view. He doesn't give us the on the ground. And so Matthew simply tells us, this is after leaving the Syrophoenician woman. It says in verse 29 of Matthew 15 that Jesus went on from there and he walked beside the Sea of Galilee. So he, he doesn't tell us about him going into Sidon, doesn't tell us about making the horseshoe. He just says that he walks beside the Sea of Galilee and he went up on a mountain and he sat down there. And great crowds came to him 
bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healed, uh, or the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And it says that they glorified the God of Israel. This language, the God of Israel, certainly connects to Gentiles seeing the work of God and then glorifying the God of the Jews, the God of Israel. The Decapolis was a Greek land, and so this would have been a Gentile territory. There would have been some Jews that would live there, but it would have been a primarily Gentile territory. And so Jesus has spent a whole lot of his time, it appears, according to Mark, and what we see reflected here in Matthew in Gentile areas. And this was, I don't believe, out of spite to what happened in Galilee the last time he was there. You know, I don't think it was because he was trying to get away from the Jews. I believe this is just a glimpse into the heart of God that he has for all people. And the ministry of Jesus extended outside of the Jews to the Gentiles as well. And ultimately, salvation to the Gentiles would come through the Jewish, uh, through the Jews, and specifically through Christ himself. And he's teaching us this, and he's showing us this in his ministry. And so what we see here in Matthew is, is that he, you know, this big overarching theme that we've seen of Jesus coming into an area, people bringing their friends and loved ones to him and him healing and him bringing healing and freedom to many. We, we saw this, you know, in Gennesaret at the end of chapter 6 where it says wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and they implored him. They begged him that he might touch even the fringe of, or that they might touch even the fringe of his garments. And it says that and as many as touched him were made well. What Mark is going to do is he's going to leave this kind of summary-like statement. He's going to give us a particular uh, healing, a particular story. And so what I want to do from there is we're going to start my little outline. And my outline is going to be a very simple one. But I want to just walk you through what we find in the rest of the text. And the first thing I want to do is remind you of two things. I want to just point out these are, these are very sub-points to the text, or side points maybe is the better way to say it, to the main point that we need to see in this text. And we'll get there, and Mark will make sure that we get there. But I want you to see this. is Today, I want to remind you that your story matters to Jesus. That your particular life and your particular story matters to Jesus. That you matter to Jesus. In the grand story of redemption and renewal and reconciliation that he's doing in this world and the, the big overarching story about his kingdom you know, that's here and that's coming to earth and in the now and the not yet of, the, you know, of what he is doing, not only you know, in front of us but in the whole world, I want you to know that your story matters to Jesus. You know, you got the 30,000-foot view that just pumps me up. It, it, it makes me feel empowered when I see him and I hear about him healing and bringing freedom and, and uh, you know, uh, meeting the needs of the crowds. Like, I love to see this happening from the 30,000-mountain-foot view. You know, as I look down, that would be a really tall mountain. 
But as I look down over it, I love to see the story of healing and redemption play out. But what Mark does is he reminds us that as this big story is going on, that also your story matters. And our stories matter to Jesus. Your story matters to Jesus. And he's going to lead us into one of these little stories that's taking place in this crowd. And so we'll get to see an actual individual. And so remember that your story matters to Jesus. But also remember this, and we see this here in the text, is that the they's of the story matters. The they's of the story matters. And you're like, what are you talking about? You got to remember, guys, I'm from Duncanville, okay? So I'm doing my best here. But what I see in this text that sticks out to me is the word they. And, and so what, what I see in verse 32, it says, and they, they brought him uh, to a, a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. This healing, part of the story of this healing, are people in this man's life who bring him to Jesus and they beg, they implore, they ask of Christ to heal him, to just lay his hands on him. And I just started thinking about how important the they's of my story you know, how important they are. And, and, you know, and it goes back, and I could just name them, you know, person after person. But, I mean, I think about the Andy Boykin of my life and Greg Davis and uh, John Wiggins and Jeremy Burridge and, and different people who have been a they. I think about the constant they that are in my life, which is my wife and my kids and my parents and, you know, people who just invest in me and constantly point me to the Lord. And there have been so many people outside of me who have pointed me or brought me to Christ. And so just remember that today, that your story matters to Jesus and the they's of our story matter. Uh, they, they really do. I have a fly that's attacking me right now. Okay, get away from me. And so we see that here in, in the text. And, and so in this particular story, we have a man who he is deaf and he has a speech impediment. We'll talk more about the word that's used, you know, for his speech impediment in just a little bit. But what this appears to be is someone who was not born deaf or born tongue-tied, but more than likely there was a sickness or an injury, something that took place in his life that, you know, caused him to not be able to talk any longer and he was unable to hear. And you know, I don't think I have to communicate this to you, but I will anyway, that it's only been in our recent history, you know, as humans, that, that people cared well for, for the deaf and the mute. It, it was, you know, at this point in history, you know, Jesus has always cared well for, for everyone, but people have not always cared well for everyone. And so this man would have been an outsider because he was deaf and because he had a speech impediment. He wouldn't have been welcomed into all of the areas and he wouldn't have had the appropriate you know, learning or care that he would have needed. It doesn't mean he didn't have family and people that love him. It's very clear that he did. And so in his house, there, he may have been just well accepted and cared for. But in the overall culture, he would have been kind of looked over and passed by. Well, in this text, we have the they, okay, whoever they are, they, they bring this man to Jesus and they beg him that he would lay his hands on him. 
It doesn't necessarily say what they were expecting him to do, but based on what we know about the ministry of Jesus and based on what we know has taken place, you know, over and over again in his ministry, we can assume that these people believed that healing was going to take place. I think it's interesting, and I forgot to mention this earlier, that the last time that Jesus was in the Decapolis, you know, he was not received very well. And so if you'll remember in chapter 5, you'll remember that Jesus heals the, the man that we've come to know, know as the demoniac. And so he had, you know, hundreds if not thousands of demons in him. <laughs> he was called Legion. And Jesus, of course, released the demons from the man and he cast them into the pigs and the pigs went and jumped in the lake. Okay, it's just a horrifying scene. And the, the people were very unhappy about this loss you know, of income that they had and the loss of property that they had with their pigs. And they, they were ready to run Jesus out of there. And so the last time he was in the Decapolis, he was not very well received, but this time he is. This time people are coming to him and it seems like great crowds were coming to him. And this particular friend group or family or people who cared for this man, they were coming to Jesus for healing. This may be because of the word that the crowds have heard about Jesus and his ministry and the kingdom of Christ tour. It also may be because of the man who was healed, the former demoniac who may have been proclaiming very loudly about the works and the ministry of Jesus. He was to go back and say all that Jesus had done for him. And it may be on his testimony and his proclamation that we see this new change in the way Jesus is received. Either way, we see that Christ is certainly received, and people are desiring to seek him for healing. So our stories matter to Jesus. We see that. We see that the people of our story are those that would make up the theys in our stories. They matter. And we see that Christ, this beautiful healing, we see that Christ sees, hears, he knows, and he cares. He cares about us. He cares about each of us, and he cared for this man. And so let's look at the way that Jesus is going to heal this man. This is such a sweet and powerful story. We, we see first, it says that he, in taking him aside from the crowd privately, he is going to do this work. And so we see first that he takes him aside. He leads him to a private setting. He takes time to care for him in a special way. And here's what we can draw from that is that he knows what this particular man needed. And from that, we can be reminded today in our homes or wherever we sit that he knows what we need. He sees us, he hears us, he knows us, and he cares for us. This man was not able to speak, but the Lord knew exactly what he was asking for. He knew exactly what he truly needed, and he knows what we need. In the grand story of redemption and renewal that's underway in the good news of Christ, we need to know and remember that what you in particular need today, and, or, or excuse me, I'm so sorry. I'm trying to read my notes. My notes are terrible. What, I, what we see is this, is that in this grand story of redemption and renewal that's taking place in Christ, we need to remember that he knows what you in particular need. He knows what you need today. He knows the food that you need for the journey that you have. And he's able to meet you in it. The way that healing will come in this story with this man is not the same way that healing came in the previous story 
with the Syrophoenician woman and her daughter. In that story, if you'll remember, healing came from afar, from a distance. Here it's going to come up close and personal in a touch. And so I want you to see that first he, he takes him aside and he's just reminding us to trust him and his ways. The second thing that he does, though, he doesn't just take him aside. He's going to identify very closely and personally and intimately with this man. It, it says that, and this is that gets us in the fields here. It says that he comes close to him and he, he's going to do something like give him sign language. He's going to speak to him using like his hands and his body. He's going to take his finger and he puts his finger in the man's ear. He touches him. He puts his finger in his ear and what he's showing him is this, is I'm going to heal you. I'm going to open up your ears. I'm going to take your deaf ears and I'm going to bring hearing to it. And so he touches his ears and then he does something that, that seems a little bit gross to me, okay? But it's not gross coming from Jesus. He, he gets a little bit of spit, probably from his tongue. And then he reaches over and he touches the man's tongue. And this is sign language showing you, I'm going to open up your ears. I'm going to loosen your tongue. And then, just so the man knows that this is not some form of magic, but this is going to be the very power of God, Jesus looks up to heaven. And so I can just see this taking place. He gets so close to him. He gets near to him. Jesus comes near. He draws near. And he comes near and he touches his ear. He touches his tongue and he points. Showing, showing that God is going to heal you. This isn't some ritual that I'm doing to bring healing. This isn't some form of magic. This is the power of God, the restoring, redemptive, reconciling power of God up close and personal in your story, in your space, freeing you. That, that's what he does. And, and after this, it, it says that he speaks the word, Apathitha, which is Aramaic for be opened. And it says that the man was healed. There, there's a word there, a phrase that we'll look at in just a few minutes that it says that when he looked up to heaven, he sighed. He moaned. He, this is a word that means like a deep groan, a deep pain. And he did that as he spoke these words into heaven, to be opened. And it was like a door that was kicked down. It was like a door that was unlocked and flung open and a prisoner released from chains that we see this man and his ears, uh, or this man's ears were opened and his tongue was released. And it says that he was free in the healing power and presence of Jesus. Now he was able to speak plainly and he could hear. I thought about Psalm 107 it speaks these poetic words of the saving power of God. It says in verse 13, it says, They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death, and he burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze, and he cuts in two the bars of iron. That's what Christ does here in this scene. That's what God does through Christ 
in this particular scene with this individual. And so in this grand story of Christ healing and uh, you know bringing healing to the lame and the blind and the crippled and the mute and many others, we see this particular healing of this one man and how Jesus does it in such a beautiful and powerful way. The man's ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke, spoke plainly. Now, the next part is really interesting and, and you, may, you may have thought this to be very odd at different times when you've studied the book, but it says in verse 35, or verse 36, it says, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. So right after he's released this guy's tongue, he says, but don't use it to speak about this. <laughs> don't talk about this right now. And I'm going to give you why I believe that he's saying that in this time in just a moment. But we've seen this more than once in the gospel according to Mark. And there was one of our sermons that I spoke about this specifically. I can't remember exactly which one it was. I should have gone back and looked. But ultimately what this is, it's a timing issue. You know, It's not that Jesus doesn't want people or the whole world to know about him. In fact, after the resurrection, Jesus is going to send his people into the entire world to go to the ends of the earth and to be proclaimers of his gospel. So, I mean... He certainly wants us to use our mouth to speak about him, but in this particular time and in this context, it wasn't his time to die yet. It wasn't his time to go to the cross yet. It wasn't that the time had not come for him to do that final work on the cross. And so he was asking people, actually, he wasn't asking them, he was telling them, he was commanding them not to speak of him in this work. You know, maybe this was to keep his fame from spreading or, or or maybe it just was knowing that understanding would not be there yet until after his resurrection. But regardless, the same thing is happening here that we've seen other places. He charges them, don't tell anybody, and what do they do? <laughs> they go and tell the whole world. They here it says that zealously they proclaimed it. Like this is like in a in a zealous manner. It means they're going they're going hard here, okay, as they're going to proclaim what Christ had done. And verse 37 gives us a beautiful picture of this crowd. <clears throat> as is probably the, the man and his friend group or family and then the greater crowd. It says they were astonished beyond measure. Well, of course they were. Saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak fantastic story but what I want you to see is this today and we'll really conclude with this final picture or thought and it's this is that this is a beautiful story of Christ and him healing this man but I, I want you to know for sure that Mark doesn't intend this just to be a sweet and powerful story that a church in Tuscaloosa you know, takes in one day in 2020. Okay, that, that's, that's not the heart of Mark here. What he's doing is showing us that Jesus was doing more than just identifying with this particular man. He was also, in this healing, identifying with us as he was fulfilling the scriptures, as he was fulfilling something that was true about him as God and as the Messiah. The word that Mark uses for this man is extremely purposeful, okay? And so I, I don't remember the exact amount, but I had, I had five hard copies of commentaries and then used four or five other ones that were 
on an online resource that I had. And every single one of them easily made this connection that we're about to look at. They easily made the connection that Jesus was in this Mark 7 text fulfilling a particular prophecy from the Bible. And it's a a passage that we actually looked at this past Wednesday, and so you can go back online and look at a short message that I did on it, but it's Isaiah 35. This Mark 7 passage is actually a fulfillment of that amazing, redemptive, messianic passage. And so we're definitely going to look at that again today. But the reason why it's so obvious is is a couple of reasons, but the main one is that Mark is going to use a word to describe this man. In our Bibles, it's translated mute, or a lot of them, a lot of times it's translated mute. But it's a word that is only used one other time in the scriptures. The word is uh, magulos. And what that word is, it's a, it's a Greek word. And so in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the entire Bible, there's only two times this word is used. It's used in Isaiah 35, and it's used here in Mark chapter 7. And so what, what that does is it makes us go to that and make a connection. Every commentary did it. It's obvious when we read it, and it is absolutely beautiful. It's such a beautiful picture of God's Word. It helps us to really marvel at the way that God's Word connects and seamlessly comes together in Christ Jesus, how every story whispers His name. Look at Isaiah 35. So hold your place there in Mark and and go over to the book of Isaiah. We're just going to read it. I'm not going to make you know, points about every text. I've talked about it a little bit more on Wednesday, and so you can go back and look at that. But I want you to see how it connects here in this passage. <clears throat> it says that the wilderness and dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. And here's our first connection. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon, and they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So the first connection that we're going to see is this, is that this story started and the healings began there in the area of Lebanon, in Tyre and Sidon. So if you go back in Isaiah and you were to read the first you know, 34 chapters, you would find that the majority of those chapters deal with judgment. And a couple of those specific judgments are given to Tyre and Sidon. And and so what we see here is that there's a reversal there to, uh, to these areas. And so where in judgment you see that they were laid waste, now there's glory that has returned to them. And so already we see the story in Mark or the landscape that we've been in in this chapter addressed or or seen here in this particular prophecy. And so the glory of Lebanon shall be given back to it. And I love that last phrase there in verse 2. It says, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Remember the text that Matthew gives when he gives the overall, the summary statement, the mountaintop view 
of this healing work that Jesus is doing, it says that the people glorified the God of Israel. They glorified the God of Israel. Here it says that they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of God. In Mark's account, it says that they were astonished beyond measure, and they said that he does all things well. We see that pictured here in verse 2. Verse 3 says, Strengthen the hand, the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. And so we'll look more at that in just a moment. But what we see is this, is this prophecy about God coming and healing. God coming and saving. And what Mark is doing is he's helping us know that when Jesus is healing this man in this text, he is showing us that he is God that has come to save. That is a, that is a beautiful connection. Look at verse 5, and here's the reminder for us in the connection that we see. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the, they shall, the, then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That's the place that we see this same word that's used, this magalos. Okay, we see it here and then we see it in Mark 7. It says that the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert and the burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. This is just a picture of him coming, God coming and making things new. God reversing the curse. God bringing renewal and redemption and restoration and reconciliation. All of the wonderful, amazing R words that we find in the scripture. Verse 8 says, And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. Jesus Christ is the way, he's the truth, and he is the life. It says that the unclean shall not pass over it, and it shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And they and the ransomed of the Lord shall return, and they shall come to Zion with singing Everlasting joy be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And here's the last part, and I think it connects to our text so well. It says, In sorrow and sighing shall flee away. <clears throat> I want to make a very, uh, maybe a connection to Mark 7 in the fulfillment of this text that's something that you might not have noticed otherwise. And but I want to make sure you see it. I think it's beautiful. I think, it's, I think it empowers us. I think it encourages our hearts. I think it opens us up to see a better and bigger, more grand picture of the work of Christ in our lives and in this world. It's that Isaiah 35 is this prophecy of God coming and healing. God coming and doing all these things like we just saw in Mark 7. You know, him, what's the phrases again? The blind shall be opened, the death unstopped, the the lame man leaping like a deer, the tongue of the mute singing for joy. We see all of this reversal, all of this amazing healing power coming from God who comes to save. But in the text, in Isaiah 35, how is it that it says he comes to save? 
How is it that he comes? And we see that he comes with judgment. It says that, or not come with, sorry, it doesn't say he comes with judgment. It says that he comes and saves through judgment. It says with recompense of God that he comes. It's, this is restitution that he comes and saves. And what we must see here is this, is that in the life of Christ, when we see him saving through judgment, we see that God doesn't come to earth in Christ. He doesn't come in the incarnation. We don't see him in Mark 7 coming to judge, but we see him coming to bear the judgment. He doesn't come to judge, but he comes to bear the judgment. That's how he saves through judgment because he becomes, he takes it upon himself. I think this is connected to what we see in Mark 7 when it says that he touches his ear, he puts his finger in his ear, he touches his tongue with his spit, he looks up to heaven and he sighs, he groans, he he makes a, a, a sigh of deep pain. Why would he do that? Why would he sigh like that? Why would he be in pain right before he heals a man? I mean, that seems so strange to us that Mark would include that. But it's in the fulfillment of a passage that we see that sorrow and sighing will flee away. And what we see with Christ is one who, as he sighs here, I believe that he sighs because he knows what it takes to remove the sighing from our life. I believe he sighs because he knows the way that ultimate healing will come. He knows what it's going to take to truly heal us. It's going to take him dying in our place. It's going to take him being judged on our behalf. In a very similar way to in John 11, Jesus approaches the tomb of Lazarus, knowing that he's going to raise him from the dead. Like he knows he's going to do that, but as he walks up to the tomb, he's weeping. We see Jesus weeping before the tomb. Why would he weep? Why would he mourn? Why would he grieve before he goes and does something wonderful? And this is how we can know that Jesus is able to identify with us. Jesus felt the pain and the sting of death. Jesus knew what it was like to be in the shadow of death. In fact, he knew what it was like to actually die in our place. Here in this text, Jesus sighs. There's a deep pain that goes over him as he releases this man from releases this man's tongue and opens up his ears. And it's because I believe that he knows the greater work that has to take place to heal. I believe that's why he immediately thinks on what has to take place and says, don't go and say a word about this. Because he's thinking about the ultimate cost. He knows what it's going to take as he gives up his own life and how he is judged in our place. Isaiah 53, just a few chapters later there in Isaiah helps us to see, you know, that the God who sighs is the God who saves. That this God can be trusted, that Jesus can be trusted, and he can identify with us and he understands us. Isaiah 53 says in verse 2, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3 
says that he was despised and rejected by men. He was called a man of sorrows. That's how Jesus was described, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. Do you think Jesus could identify with this man as he pulled him off aside? Do you think he could identify with an outcast? Do you think he could identify with one who may have felt so overlooked in his life or ignored? Oh, I know that he could. Do you think that he could identify one who was walking through a season of sorrow or pain, of grief? Can he identify with you? Can he identify with me? The answer is yes, he can. And he can identify perfectly. It says that he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, with the wounds of Christ, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look at verse seven in the first part of eight. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he has taken away, or he was taken away. Jesus did not come in Mark 7, there in the incarnation. Jesus didn't come to judge, but he came to bear the judgment. He came to save. And what we see with Isaiah 35 is this beautiful prophecy of him coming, that Mark is saying that when you see Jesus healing here, you see God in the flesh saving. You see him here before our eyes. This prophecy coming true in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ our Lord. For us at home today, we know that he can be trusted with us, that he can meet us in our own story. He knows, he cares, he sees, he hears, and he can meet us where we are. He can identify with us. Hebrews chapter 2, and I'll conclude with the reading of this scripture. Since This is chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to, pay, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Verse 18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. No matter where you are today, know this, is that he loves you. He understands you, and he alone can meet you where you are with the healing that you need. Trust him, believe him, lean into his promises and know that he truly does all things well. May you be blessed today as you consider and pray through this word from, from the Lord. 
May you know that the Lord loves you and that I love you. He is always for you. He's never against you. Grace and peace to you, church.